And when time allots, we start with the Old Testament. So we're going to jump in before our first Corinthians study into Proverbs 10. We'll actually be fini finishing up Proverbs 10, uh, starting with verse 27. I'll read it and then I'll go through it again if you haven't turned there. Uh, it says, The fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. The hope of the righteous will be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. The way of the Lord is strength for the upright, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. The righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not inhabit the earth. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut out. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. You see this sharp contrast, and the reason why I lumped these six verses together is because you see this dichotomy, this sharp contrast between uh, the wicked and the righteous in these six verses. And really, as I'll kind of wrap it up, the choice is ours which category we fall into. Verse 27, the fear of the Lord prolongs days. Living a godly life is good for us in many different ways. Number one, it's good for us physically. Uh, we respect our bodies. We respect what God has created. So we tend to abuse our bodies less, hopefully, with things that could harm us in self-destructive ways. Um, even our emotional health. Uh, the studies have shown that even recovering from surgery, those who had a positive outlook, those who prayed, those who had hope, healed quicker, right? So you see that the godly live a better life albeit, um, you know, barring a natural disaster or, you know, an untimely death. And even if you look at the immune system, those who share multiple partners uh, over their lifetime have trouble with their immune system. And uh, you can see these studies too because of the exchange of so much bacteria and different, the chemistry issue. You know, God created a man and a woman to be married and live together for their whole lives. And we kind of get used to each other mentally, spiritually, and also physically, right? Our bodies get used to each other. The wicked, though, probably all things being equal, abuse their body with fast living. They don't have as much of a respect on their body. Uh, the, the wicked are just looking to gratify themselves and uh, just basically get all they can get because they don't think of a God. They don't think of accountability, right? So the righteous, all things being equal, will have better health. Now, I know when I was younger, there was a song from Billy Joel that said, only the good die young. <laughs> but sorry, Billy Joel, um, according to the scripture, that's not true. Verse 28, it says, the hope of the righteous will be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. The hope of the righteous now, as believers, we have hope in many ways, especially eternally. And it doesn't mean as believers that we don't go through hard times, but we have hope. Even in the darkest hour of a believer's life, they have hope. There's that light at the end of the tunnel. I don't know how people make it who don't have the Lord with the terrorism threats and the H1N1 virus. And there's so many fears out there. But as a believer, we have hope. And even the hope here is that we can be a part of God's plan. We can be a part of his furthering the kingdom of heaven. But the expectation of the wicked, on the other hand, it's nothing. It'll perish. The only thing they can expect is to fall into judgment, right? And in the hands of a holy and righteous God. That's not a good thing. Verse 29, it says, The way of the Lord is strength for the upright, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. 
Right? The way of the Lord is strength to the upright. Now, we can see this in the Old Testament, and it's also carried through in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God's people would look at him as their rock, as their foundation, as their strong tower. Right? Especially, you look at the Psalms. It's all over the Psalms. Uh, in the New Testament, Jesus also took those attributes, being God himself, as the rock, as the cornerstone, also as the foundation. The Bible says that we, as believers, are built together in a spiritual household, but the foundation must be laid. So the strength of the upright is, you know, is in the Lord. And destruction comes to the workers of iniquity. Ultimate destruction is destruction of the soul in hell. Jesus said, don't fear the one who can kill the body and do nothing more than that. But fear the one, have reverence for the one, God, who can not only take the body, but is able to put you in a category where your soul is destroyed for eternity in hell. That's an important perspective to look at. 30. The righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not inhabit the earth. The righteous will never be removed. We are promised eternity in Christ. If it was my time to go right now and I was taken out, I'm not going anywhere. My body may fall to the ground, but who I am, what makes me unique, my essence, my spirit, continues to live according to the scripture for eternity. So the righteous will never be removed, will never be blotted out, all right? But the wicked will never inhabit the earth. Uh, judgment will remove them eternally and permanently. And we know that it's a possibility not inhabit the earth, that this is a reference to the new heavens and the new earth, uh, and the wicked won't be there when this is after that's created. Verse 31, the mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut out. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom because it comes from the Holy Spirit. When we tap into God's wisdom, it comes from God himself, right? We tap into the wisdom of the creator. So we have the wisdom of the ages when we have the Holy Spirit. It's a treasure trove to rely on. And we'll see that in our first Corinthians study today. But the perverse tongue will be cut out. <laughs> Wouldn't that be interesting if that started happening now? How many people would be walking around going, <laughs> there'd probably be very few politicians left in Washington to have anything to say. <laughs> 32, the lips of the righteous know what is acceptable. Our words should be measured. Our words should emulate God's word. We should emulate Jesus. We know what is acceptable. Even when a Christian sins, they know that they're doing wrong because we know what is acceptable, right? But the mouth of the wicked knows what's perverse. Now, the wicked, check this out, also measure their words, but they're going in the opposite direction. They purposely sow discord and perversity. For whatever reason, the thought came to my mind is um, a case that's coming before the Washington State uh, Supreme Court, and it's about uh, librarians who decided, right, to put filters on uh, uh, the internet so that when the public comes in, kids can't access pornography sites. You'd think that's a good thing, right? Well, of course, the ACLU is taking the other side and they're fighting it. So we don't know what's going to happen with this. It could go all the way to the United States Supreme Court, but the wicked purposely know and sow what is perverse. There are groups in this country, there are politicians that are, want to make laws allowing all kinds of perversity, right? So they know, like we know, what's right and what's wrong, but they sow the opposite of what we want to sow, and it's this constant battle of the cultures. 
Again, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, which category you fall into, and remember, there's only two categories in the world. After all the noise of the media and the politics, it's not about Republicans and Democrats. It's not about men and women. It's not about black and white. There's only two categories that we fall into. We're either part of the righteous, and we'll see that we are righteous through Christ and what he does for us, that righteousness that he imputes to us, or a part of the wicked. That's it. By default, you have to fall into one of those two categories. But understand, folks, if you don't know the Lord, that's your choice. Today, you could make the decision to fall into the category that I just went through of the righteous. God loves you. He's called you back through his son, Jesus. Okay. 1 Corinthians 6, fast forward to the New Testament. The last time we went through church discipline in chapter 5 and showed how if it's done right, it's motivated out of love, and it brings about a change of behavior and a change of heart. Today, we're going to see that the church of Corinth had problems with litigation, lawsuits among believers, and the underlying problems of selfishness and lovelessness. Verse 1, the Apostle Paul starts out, a little fired up. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments... Concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? So you have this problem with litigation among believers. Um, instead of settling their disputes in the church, they're going before the heathen courts. Now, let me just paint a little bit of a, a picture or a background for you. In that society, right, Corinth is located in Greece. Even though the Romans took over, there was a heavy uh, Hellenistic, um, you know, Grecian type of influence in that area. The Grecian culture often carried their philosophical and their oratory skills and their debating skills from even the public into the courtrooms, right, in the form of lawsuits. As a matter of fact, the 5th century B.C. comic playwright Aristophanes often pointed out the presence, the heavy presence of lawsuits in the Grecian culture. Christians in Corinth once again emulated the decadent society that they lived in, and they sued each other for trivial things. You know, society hasn't changed much. Trial lawyers are among the wealthiest in the United States, and they have a very powerful lobby in Washington. As a matter of fact, most of our politicians in Washington are lawyers. It's nothing against lawyers. I'm not saying that. I work with lawyers on a regular basis. But I'm trying to show you the parallels between their society and really our society today. Today we can see a variety of court actions, and I'll just go through them briefly. Number one, criminal. We're all familiar with that. You commit a crime, you'll probably end up charged and having to defend yourself in court. Two, adversarial civil suits. This is, you can sue for divorce, it's adversarial, right? And you can sue for money, as in small claims court. And it is possible 
that if we were to narrow this down, this is largely what the Corinthians were doing. They were suing each other in small claims court for trivial matters. And the third type of lawsuits today, or suits, are procedural suits, such as workman's comp. So if you get hurt on the job, it's a procedure. It's not adversarial necessarily, but you're suing to get your medical bills paid. So those are the three types really that we have in our society. And of course there's others. So the background is painted, but understand the main thrust here, the main thrust is that what lied beneath the veneer of the lawsuits really was how Christians treated each other and the example they set to the world about how they treated each other. That's really what lied. That was the important thrust here. Understand that. Now, the Apostle Paul is not saying you should never be in court or you should obstruct justice or obstruct an investigation or not to report a, a crime. There are certain um, cultish type groups that will never have police involvement. So it could be a molestation, it could be something serious, but they don't go to the outside world. And then they, they find out that uh, they do like these exposés on things that have happened in these communities. That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Verse 1, he says, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Again, the Apostle Paul is not happy with their behavior, and we'll see the underlying reasons that he gives. Give a little caveat here, um, and I'm going to try to contrast this with a, maybe more of an extreme situation so you understand what the Apostle Paul is not saying. There was a, a, an actual situation that somebody had discussed with me, and I wasn't the pastor, just in passing they ended up talking to me that a brother had a family, and uh, he had another brother move in with him. And apparently, you know, the agreement was to help him get back on his feet, uh, find a job, help pay the bills and go out on his own. Well, the guy who moved in didn't get a job. Months went by, a long time went by, wasn't paying the bills, and he was actually aggressive towards the family. So the family moves out of their own house, and they had to go through an eviction procedure. All right? Now, this is just the way the law works. You can't just call the police if a residency is established. The police can't just throw somebody out. Understand? There's got to be a process there. If I was the pastor and that situation came before me, I would say to the brother who moved in, get out. How dare you have these, this family move out? And if that's truly his behavior, he's a wolf and he's not even a brother. So understand, the man initially had a duty to protect his children and his wife. All right? So this is not what the Apostle Paul is speaking about. There are going to be genuine circumstances, but apparently in Corinth, it was an epidemic, and it was pandemic to their church. In other words, their attitude was, hey, this is how we solve our problems. It's what we do. And that was, that was troubling. The Apostle Paul says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world, and the saints will judge angels? Wow. Now, we saw this in our Revelation study. We talked about the millennial kingdom. We talked about what role we as believers will have that God will use us in sort of, um, you know, a, a judge sort of role. Very interesting. It's a little foggy. I don't think anybody can completely nail it down. Um, so there's, there's a judgment issue here. Now, talking about the world, uh, maybe the unsaved, those who have refused Christ, those who who still left on the earth after the revelation period time, um, you know, the, uh, the judgments, etc., there'll be some people left on the earth, and we may have a role over them, in a sense, an authority role. The other thing is the angels. Now, the book of Jude, just before Revelation, says this, that the angels 
you know, the ones who became demonic, the ones who uh, disobeyed God, didn't keep their proper domain, but left their habita habitation and are reserved in chains in darkness for the day of judgment. So that might give us a little insight to what's going to happen with this judgment of angels. Now, to what extent will we judge? I'm not sure. But it appears that God has big plans for us. I would add this. As sinners, we have biases or prejudices, right? We'll look at, if, if, let's say God put us in charge now in our, in our sinful state. It probably wouldn't work because either it would be something that if we liked someone, we would favor them, or if it was to benefit us, maybe we would have a different judgment. So I believe that in the rapture, when God calls us home, or in the end, uh, that sin component of us is going to be removed, and then we'll be able to judge more righteously. Right? That's what I believe. Now, in light of this, the Apostle Paul is saying, you have a responsibility, believers, in this life. You just quick, you're quick to go to the courts. You're shirking your responsibility and passing it off to the heathens who have no Holy Spirit to guide them. Verse 4, he says, If you then have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? Least esteemed by the church. And again, isn't it better to have somebody in the fellowship who's a believer, who has the Holy Spirit and can tap into that wisdom, versus going to the court and maybe going before a judge that's not a believer, has, doesn't have the Holy Spirit, and isn't going to rule on spiritual matters. The heathen judge, okay, uh, may not rule based on God's law. Well, we see that the courtrooms today in the United States, again, the ACLU and different groups are suing to take the Ten Commandments out of the courts. Even if they're engraved in marble, what they do is they fill it over with plaster and just completely cover it up like it's not there. So that's what's going on in our court systems. The probability in the way our country is going to rule on God's law is going to become less and less. And with the presence of activist judges who basically disregard the legislature. Legislatures make laws, right? You know your civics. And the judge, when he's uh, arbitering on a matter, has to look at that law and judge according to that law. But we have activist judges in this country that are completely superseding and turning over the laws of our legislatures and propositions that uh, the majority of the people want. So you don't know what you're going to get. It's a gamble. The church should be the first stop in the spiritual handling problems among the spiritual. You can look at the situation with Moses. God set up Moses to judge, to handle the problems between the children of Israel. Moses was getting so overwhelmed with the problems with the children of Israel that he actually, um, I think it was Jethro, his father-in-law, suggested, why don't you be like the Supreme Court and put you know, good, honorable folks under you that can do the judgment, and if it needs to be appealed, you can handle those appeals, and that seemed to work. Matthew 18, even in the New Testament, the Bible says that uh, there's different ways that we can handle our disputes hopefully among with one-on-one, -on -one, if not with witnesses, and lastly, through the, uh, the church body. And I would say that you never know what you're going to get in the United States courts today. Judges are placed there based on sometimes politics, sometimes nepotism, favoritism, activist judges. You don't know what you're going to get. If you follow some of the rulings of some of these federal judges or even Supreme Court, uh, you look at Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was put in by Bill Clinton. This woman, you, you watch her ruling. She is rabidly anti-faith. 
uh, anti-spiritual issues, pro-abortion, and she never changes what she, and you can read some of her decisions, they're frightening that this person is in our Supreme Court. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, she's not qualified to be a dog catcher, but that's just my opinion. Verse 5, is there not one wise man in the whole church that can settle a dispute between brothers? That's pretty sad. He's saying to the believer, don't you realize that the potential, the treasure, and the power that you're sitting on, you know, a collective body filled with the Holy Spirit, gifts of the Holy Spirit, we're going to get into that in the later chapters, and there's not one wise person among you who can solve the problems between these brothers and sisters? That's problematic. James also says the same thing, that we have the wisdom of God that we can tap into, but we don't always do it. You have not, you ask not. And what you ask for, you ask amiss. God is willing to give his wisdom to believers. Unfortunately, a lot of times, we as believers don't tap into the wisdom that God has for us. We're so used to living in the world and having talents in the world that we use the world's tools and we forget to use God's tools. But that's there for the taking. Verse 6, but brother goes to law against brother and that before the unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be defrauded? So this is an utter failure. Why? Because it's a bad witness. It's a black eye for Jesus. You've got these believers going into the courtrooms, right? Apparently, it's not just two of them, this was a problem throughout the church, going before these heathen judges and, and having these disputes over trivial matters. That's problematic. I want to read something that as believers we should always be reminded of this. John 13, starting with thir uh, John 13, 34. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. But this, all will know, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In those two verses, he says that three times. Love one another. The world is supposed to recognize believers by their love for one another. Apparently not in Corinth. And this loving one another was a command. It wasn't a suggestion, right? It was a command that Jesus left for his followers. Even the Jews in those days settled their disputes in the synagogue. And some of the heathen guilds uh, would make vows that if they had problems, they wouldn't go to the courts. They would settle it amongst themselves. But the Christians were going to courts. Now you see this, we've seen this firsthand, and we've seen, look, we're, we're sinners, we're all sinners, so we're going to wear on each other. But what is the proper procedure, you know? Uh, how does this work out? How is it supposed to work out? And we've covered Matthew 18. I've seen Christian business owners who say, I won't hire Christians again. They're lazy and they take advantage of me because I'm a Christian boss. Or Christian bosses who won't pay or delay paying their Christian employees because they, they're, well, they're a brother. I can, I can, you know, they can wait a little bit. Or a Christian who owes another Christian money, you know, maybe not a lot of money, and just takes the money and says they're going to pay it back in a certain time and they don't do it. If you owe somebody money, pay them back or don't borrow it. Or Christian divorce is on par with the unsaved. You don't think that the judges see this? Oh, another Christian divorce. Gee, sign me up. I want to be a believer. All right? This is all part of the lawsuit issue and going to court. What do unbelievers think when they see us fighting, especially going into court? 
You know, again, can you picture an unbeliever saying, hey, that's something that I want. Didn't Jesus say they're supposed to love each other? What would the South Brunswick community think? And, and I was wondering, does the South, South Brunswick community, the community that we're in, know that Calvary Chapel, Crossfields Christians have love for each other? Do we love each other? It's an important question to ask. Are we cohesive? Do we have friends here? Do we want to get involved and meet and get to know people? Or is it just what we do Sunday? This is where we come on Sunday. I got news for you. You know, want to go out and save the world. We want to go out and do different ministries. Want to go out in the missions field. Uh, want to go out and start something, a college ministry. But how can we love the world if we can't practice love within our, our walls and our doors? And you know what? You can look at that with any church. Do we love each other? Everybody wants to go out and save the world. But do we love each how can we show the world love if we can't love each other see the love among the believers has to be strong it has to be cohesive otherwise don't farm it out don't export it it doesn't work verse 7 the apostle paul is basically saying it's better to be wronged or defrauded uh, you know for trivial matters a few bucks or whatever settling a grudge than going to the heathen courts and airing the dirty laundry i have a question how many people and it, it doesn't have to be for a bad reason. How many people, raise your hand, I'll raise mine, have ever been in a courtroom? Okay, a lot of you, right? Municipal court, if it's a grudge match, it can be embarrassing, you know? You're on display. There's so many people in that courtroom, and you don't know who knows who or how they might know you or if they might see you again. Superior court is worse. Think about all the people that are in court. Law enforcement officials, police, bailiffs, maybe sheriff's officers, uh, a judge, right? Court officials, stenographer, clerical staff, witnesses, jury, right? It's very embarrassing to have to bring that type of uh, issue into the courtroom. What kind of witness is that? And the question is, whether we like it or not, we are representatives of God doesn't mean we're equal with God. I'm not going there. That's heresy. But what I'm saying is we're supposed to reflect the light of Christ, right? So what kind of witness and what does the world see when they see us doing this type of thing? Here's a, a very important point to really meditate on. Do you realize that those of the unsaved world, when they see us in a certain situation, we might be the only representation of God that they ever see? Really meditate on that, good or bad, right? Someone goes their whole life, really has not a good exposure to Christianity, and they see you, Tom, or you, Steve, or you, Vin, in a situation. Now, that really puts a lot of pressure on us, doesn't it? It certainly does. And that's why we need to be in the spirit, you see. Because we're supposed to be giving the message of hope to a lost and dying world. And we may be the only representation of God that someone ever sees. And that's really important to think about. Verse 8. He goes on to say, No, you yourselves do wrong and defraud, and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified 
in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That's the message of hope after everything that we just read. From the perpetrator's side, how could you do this to a brother or sister in Christ? You cause harm to your brother and then ask the heathen courts to arbiter between spiritual brothers. If, you, if we have any contact with these type of people, it should be to be a good witness, to be showing them the good news of salvation, the light of Christ, that God loves you, that he's reconciled us back to him in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, let me just t cover this list of, of different sins given, and I don't believe it's an exhaustive list. But number one, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Right? We saw this in the Proverbs study. There's a great parallel to what we just covered in Proverbs and now 1 Corinthians 6, Old Testament and New Testament lining up. These people are not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven, and you're going before them to settle a dispute before people who won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Two, you guys were these things. Don't be prideful. Don't be arrogant. Some of you in Corinth were of this list, but God took you out of there. You were saved, you were cleansed, and now you revert back to this type of behavior. Now, as far as the list goes, there are some Christians that may look at this and say, gee, I've done that even as a believer. There's a difference between a practice, and the Bible speaks about that, a practice. If you're a doctor, you're practicing medicine, right? You could be doing that for 30 years because that's what you do. Do we practice this type of behavior or do we, when we're saved, say, you know what, I don't want to do that anymore. It's not pleasing to God. Prior to being saved, it's what you did. It's what we looked forward to doing. Or you did it and you think nothing of it. It just happens. It's natural when you're a natural person. But after being saved, we have the desire to have victory over those sins. To have victory over a changed life. To have victory and to be changed into the image of Jesus Christ even if in some instances we're still fighting it. Last verse, and this is really the message of hope here. The Apostle Paul says, some of you were in this category, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. This is what God is willing to do for us, and he has done through, for us through Jesus Christ. But we have the, uh, the responsibility of the, the gift of eternal life is there for the taking. We have to actually receive it, okay? Washed from the filth of sin or our former lifestyles. I could just picture us standing before God as, as a father and him saying, son, what stains? I don't see anything on you with a smile. Or, son, you tell me you used to do that? You know, for the life of me, I just can't remember that. I just can't do it. God can't remember that. He forgets your sins as they are from the east to the west. Now, as humans, we hold on to them. And if you make me mad again, I'll bring up what you did five years ago, right? But God doesn't do that, you see? And that ties us into justification. Now, understand that when we're washed, it's a negative action. Something is removed from us. God uses his spot remover, and he takes all the spots off of us. And he sees us as clean because of what his son did on the cross. So that's a negative action, being washed. Now, justification is a positive action. And follow this. So we're washed and we're justified. We are positionally declared righteous by God because of what Jesus did on the cross, as if we've never sinned. We now qualify to inherit eternal life at whatever time we die because we've been justified. Washed, it's removed. Justified, it's a positive action. He just said, he put the stamp of righteousness, boom, on us. We've been justified. 
because of what Jesus did. The third action is sanctified. As we go through the journey of life as a believer, God continues to mature us and grow us as believers. You see, we move now in a linear pattern. Jesus is our focus and our standard. So, washed, justified, you know, I may live another 50 years as a believer. So what happens to me now? I'm sanctified. I focus on Christ. I have the Holy Spirit to guide me. And the Holy Spirit helps me to move me in that direction, right? So I'm moving in a linear pattern to be better each year, each day, sanctified, to be set apart from the world, to be set apart for the service of God. That's a message of hope right there. doesn't matter what background you came from. And I'll tell you, some of us think that, well, I've never done anything wrong. I've always been a pretty good person. Actually, when I came to the Lord, people say to me, was it drugs? Was it alcohol? Was it divorce? No, it wasn't any of those things. I thought I was just fine. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with me. And I started listening to the word, and I, I heard what God said. I heard what his word said. And this book all of a sudden now became a mirror to me. When I looked in the mirror, I liked what I see. Then I looked in this mirror, and I said, ooh, I didn't see that. That doesn't look so good. So sometimes we're saved from the sin of pride. I'm great, no problem. You read God's word, it shows you that you're not great. You're a sinner. You're separated from God, no matter how great you think you are. Right? And that's a message of hope, too. Even the prideful can be saved. Read Luke 12. I'm going to read Luke 12. I just read what I was supposed to read. So Luke 12, starting with verse 57. Short few verses. I'm going to go back to the court issue, and then I'm going to tie it all up, and I'm going to wrap it up, and we're going to end here. Luke 12, 57. Jesus says, yes, and why even of yourselves do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, right, this is a picture of two folks who are having a dispute going to court. Make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge, the judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer throw you into, into the prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last might. Sometimes we think that we're 100% right in an issue, and we find out otherwise. And why? Because we're sinners. We're going to see ourselves always in a better light, always. Whenever we have a dispute with somebody, it's always going to be somebody else's fault, right? And that's based on sin, self-deception, and selfishness. I look at the TV courts. You know, for the life of me, I can't get into the mind of somebody that not only wants to air their dirty laundry in the courtroom, but wants it televised. <laughs> I, I just don't get it, <laughs> you know? You look at the people's court, then divorce court. Now they have traffic court that they're, you know, filming. And that Judge Judy, I certainly wouldn't want to be before her. <laughs> You know, when I see these folks go before the court, I'm embarrassed for them. You know, they think they're right. And then even when they lose, the, the, the judge completely overturns what they have to say, and they have to pay the fine, and, you know, Doug Llewellyn at the end is interviewing them, right? And saying, so, what did you think? Oh, the judge was wrong. I was completely right. I don't know how this could be. We're self-deceived. That's why Jesus said, try to work with people. Because you may not be as right as you think you are. And, and that's, good, that's good counsel. It comes from the Word of God. Whenever there's a situation, we should always look at ourselves and say, what part of this do I own? Well, even if it's a small percentage, what do I own out of this? It makes us a better person.
So this section really isn't so much a commentary on Christians in the court system. It's not, as it is a commentary on love. A few things that we can pull from underneath the veneer of Christians in the court. Because people will look at this and say, well, now, Pastor Joe, I have this issue. Can I go to court and, and you know, then look for loopholes and all this kind of stuff around the scripture? But that's not what it's about. We're, we're missing the boat here. It's about love. Number one, think the better of others. Treat them the way you would want to be treated. Now, isn't that the golden rule that Jesus spoke about? Even before you deal with somebody, treat them the way you would want to be treated. Second, look past minor faults of others. That's good marriage counsel. <laughs> if you can do that, you'll be married a long time. Pay attention, teens. All right? Three, compromise with others. You may not be as right as you think you are. Four, seek the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is there for the taking. It's not like we're hurting God by tapping into his storehouse of treasure. James was, was rife with talking about how we can tap into God's wisdom, uh, earthly and sensual wisdom versus heavenly and godly wisdom. And the, the, the one, if we tap into it, it's just like a storehouse of, of treasure that shoots down at us. It's pretty neat. Let him, God's word, and let God be the final authority. John 13, 35, last one, obey, not the suggestion, but the command to let the world, when they look at us, recognize us by our love for one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your blessings.